Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Brooke Masters, the FT's Chief Regulation Correspondent, Danielle Schaefer, Investment Banking Correspondent, Charlene Goff, our Retail Banking Correspondent, and Alistair Gray, Insurance Correspondent. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing what JP Morgan and Wells Fargo tell us about the upcoming third quarter results for US banks and those in Europe. Then we'll move on to talk about the Financial Service Authorities easing up on liquidity and capital rules in the UK. And finally, we'll take a look at RBS. After a mixed week for the bank following its failed deal to sell 316 branches to Santander, but its successful flotation of its direct line insurance business. First to those US results, Daniel, you've been looking at what JP Morgan and Wells Fargo did last week in terms of their numbers and what that might herald for their rivals. I think we've got Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley this week. And Bank of America. And Bank yes. of America. What were you expecting? I think JP Morgan and Wells Fargo's results boded quite well for uh, for the other banks as well. What we've seen, both banks have actually had quite a good quarter, mostly thanks to the Fed's program of QE3 buying up mortgage bonds that actually boosted their income from writing new mortgages. And Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, said that actually the housing market in the US is on its way to recovery. So we've seen it in the results. JP Morgan had posted a, a quarterly record result, actually, of $5.7 billion, which was a jump by 34%. And Wells Fargo had also a record result of $4.9 billion, which was up 22%. So that should be particularly helpful for, for Bank of yeah, America, I guess. Yeah, particularly for Bank of America, which Obviously, it's a big player in the mortgage market. That should be helpful also for Citigroup. But the other takeaway from the particularly JP Morgan's results is that also the investment banking side has actually improved. JP Morgan's adjusted results in the investment bank went, went up from half a billion last year to $1.7 billion. So it's quite a big jump. And, and that actually is going to bode well for, for both Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, but also for some of the European banks and their investment banking operations. And what has driven that was particularly the fixing income side of trading, but also in the investment banking divisions, debt capital market side. So the issuance of new bonds, which was particularly strong in Europe in the last quarter. So the big winners than that should be the likes of Deutsche and Barclays, I suppose. Yes, Deutsche could have quite a good quarter. Barclays as well, although for them, it's going to be tougher to beat the second quarter, which was for Barclays an outstandingly good quarter compared to the other banks. So for them, from a comparison point, it's going to be hard to beat that. Well, we'll watch all those numbers closely over the next one, two, three weeks. We should move on to our second topic, which is the regulatory easing that we've seen in the UK. Brooke, you broke the story last week. It was a scoop of noticing and interpreting, I think it's fair to say, that basically something that the FSA had tucked away in some of its announcements a few days earlier and really hadn't been picked up by anybody or had been misunderstood by quite a few people. What exactly happened? Basically, at the very end of September, the FSA put out a long and confusing note about how it was going to adjust its liquidity and capital requirements in line with what the Financial Policy Committee, which is our new macro prudential regulator, uh, was 
was asking it to do, but it didn't put it in any way that anybody could understand in English. So I basically called them and said, I don't understand this. I'm sure nobody else does either. In fact, what it was, was the FSA is essentially allowing banks that make loans that would qualify under funding for lending, even if they don't use funding for lending funds. Funding for lending is the the Bank of England's government-backed kind of sponsorship scheme to make lending available more cheaply to SMEs and mortgage mortgages. Customers, right? And even fairly large mid-sized corporates. But basically, if you make a loan that, that the government is officially trying to get you to make, you don't have to hold extra capital against it, which is a big bonus because capital is expensive. And similarly, and that, that only applies to UK lending. So this is a switch really away from the direction of regulatory reform around the world, and particularly in the UK, where it's been piling up capital requirements for basically the past three or four years. What they're basically saying is long term, we still want you to have more capital. But right now, we think it's more risky that the economy is going to completely tank and all the loans you already hold are going to become worthless than for you to move a little more slowly to having proper amounts of capital stored away. This is part of Lord Turner, who is the chairman of the FSA's sort of pitch to be Bank of England governor, because he is making a statement for himself as a flexible banking regulator, that they are willing to be aggressive and bold and, and unorthodox in trying to fix the economy when they have to. It sounds like it could be dangerous. It feels from a kind of objective point of view as if this is politicizing the regulation of the banks under pressure from politicians who want to see more lending into the economy. The regulator is bending over. There's a little bit of that. There is also the fact that the FSA has been way out on the far end of toughness when it comes to banking regulation, because of course, the UK did get hit particularly badly by the financial crisis. And there are plenty of rational people who are not politicians who would say, actually, if the FSA would slow down a little bit, it's not so bad for for the economy, if we can help the economy grow. They are definitely taking a calculated risk, and it could go really badly if the UK goes into a prolonged recession. On the other hand, I think their calculated risk is at least reasonable, because if you could you know, sort of fend off that prolonged recession, it would do an enormous amount of good. Certainly, uh, it's, it's another thing for investors to worry about, I suspect. On the basis of a few conversations I've had with, with big investors in the banks, they are pretty worried about this, even though the last thing they want is for capital ratios to be pushed up higher and higher by the regulator. They are, I think, concerned about a kind of Chinese-style economic management via the regulator and piling up new loans without the capital to back it is something that they see as concerning. Thanks for that, Brooke. We should move on to our third and final topic, quite a chunky one, really, Royal Bank of Scotland, which has had a pretty busy week, Charlene. We saw the week start off the bloat of, of direct line, which we'll come back to in a moment with Alistair, but it finished up then with kind of bad news on the front of them not being able to sell more than 300 branches to Santander. Yes, the news broke very late on uh, Friday night, another great FT banking scoop. We revealed that Santander had uh, essentially pulled the plug on this deal after more than two years of talking and trying to make it work with RBS. They actually visited, or Anna Bortin, the chief executive of Santander UK, called in Stephen Hester, RBS's chief executive, on Thursday night to tell him that they were no longer going to go ahead. So quite disappointing news for RBS. We've heard that they weren't entirely shocked by the news. I think Santander had been making it increasingly clear in recent months that they were losing interest in the deal. The deal has always proved a very complicated one to get done. It's been very complicated. Complex. They've been trying to carve out 2 million retail customers and 250,000 business customers. And there's various different tales on why it didn't work. Both banks essentially telling different stories. Is it that big a deal? I mean, certainly RBS over the weekend has been trying to play it down, saying it only accounts for 2% of their capital base and that, you know, this isn't a disaster at all. On the other hand, it feels like, you know, it was symbolically quite important to be able to kind of get the last one really of the uh, state aid penalties imposed by Brussels done. 
Yes, exactly. It was. I think it does have that symbolic significance, and it puts RBS right back. Yes, two years of work, basically. That yeah, I mean, they're、uh, they're saying that work is not all wasted because they can essentially transfer it to a new buyer, or if they decide to go and float these branches, they would have had to have done that anyway. The carve out is kind of part done, basically. Exactly. Done. But、yeah. the fact that you know they can't get themselves in a position where they're getting over that final hurdle, and also it doesn't exactly reflect particularly well on the strength of their business. If you know a bank like San. Santander is saying we just can't make it work, and we spent a lot of money trying to make it work, and invested a huge amount of time. And actually, it's more hassle than it's worth. It doesn't particularly bode well for RBS finding a new buyer.、Uh, there have been a few names in the frame early: Virgin Money, Christopher Flowers, who runs the JC Flowers Private Equity Unit. You know, these are people that have expressed an early interest in the branch. But it is very early stage.、Right? It is very、yeah. early stage, and I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone else to get this deal done. Really,、yeah. uh, given the climate we're in, and even if They do. We're talking big reduction in the price that RBS would have expected. Which is why there's an argument, a strong argument, really, for Stephen Hester going back to Brussels and either pleading for an extension or even. To be let off the sale altogether, as,、yeah. as happened with some of the other European banks that got state aid. There was some talk over the weekend about whether RBS might be let off altogether.、Mm. Um, some other banks have had state aid remedies waived by the EU. I mean, we have heard that the EU Commissioner is is less inclined to do that for the British banks who've had a lot of time to yes, get these state、done. aid penalties done. And obviously, you know, as banks go, they were some of the hardest hit and received some of the biggest bailouts in the world. So I think they're less inclined. To let them off than they have been, but you know you've got to be realistic, and it's going to be a tough deal to get done now. It wasn't all bad news for RBS last week, though. Stephen Hester, the chief executive, is said to have been far happier that he actually managed to get away the direct line IPO than with the disappointment of. The failed Santander deal, Alastair. You were looking at that transaction. Were you surprised that they managed to get it away? Well, there've been a lot of sort of horror stories in the IPO market, and this certainly wasn't a horror story. It was quite a chunky one as well. Yeah, bearing in mind that originally equity analysts were talking about a valuation of you know something like three point five billion pounds for the whole business. The fund managers we were speaking to quite early on in the process were saying you know if they tried it at that level, it just would not happen, and it didn't happen at that level. The people had. The process listened and cut it. it got away at about valuation of two point six billion. That's a pretty chunky discount to peers in the sector. But it was still on a par with book value, and I guess. At a time when banking assets are trading way below book value, the key thing for RBS would have been to get the deal done. Again, it was one of these Brussels-ordered divestments. Absolutely, and I mean the consensus among most investors is that the process was handled pretty well. A couple of interesting points, you know, they cast the net really quite widely. The public, in the end, ended up taking about fifteen percent stake in the equity that was floated. Twenty-six thousand-ish individual investors took part. You know that scene is. You know why not? Why not involve the public? And they so, sold about thirty percent altogether. Yes, although Goldman Sachs, who's one of the people handling it, has authority to increase that to thirty-four and a half percent in the coming weeks. Basically,、um, the seventy percent left.、Yeah. What happens with that stake? I think under the Brussels dictate, they have to sell it all by the end of twenty fourteen. Is that right? That's right. They've got to cede control, so they've got to hand over at least fifty percent by the end of next year, the end of twenty thirty. And they've got to get rid of the whole thing by the end of the following year. Clearly, the RBS will be hoping that the shares rise, and there's a few things in the way that might might prevent that. The motor market is tough in the、yeah. UK, and plans of a lot of restructuring, cost cutting plans that they have to. You know, there can be no slip ups there. Essentially,、uh, it will be very interesting to see whether or not.
not they, they involve retail investors again. I, I guess at least they've got their foot in the door and the process has begun. But one reservation that some fund managers have is um, the sheer number of institutions that were involved in this. The syndicate handling the deal was something like 12 banks. People think that's just too many. There's a sort of lack of independent research. A, apparently there are a lot of buy notes out there. Yes. Uh, people are sort of expressing some hesitance about you know having all this aggressive, quite aggressive marketing before actually seeing the prospectus and making their own mind up. But I mean, that's sort of splitting hairs a little bit, frankly. I mean, the, the thing got away. We'll watch the subsequent sales closely as well, I'm sure. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Brooke, Charlene, Alistair and Daniel for their contributions and to thank you for listening. You can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Nalini Sivathasan. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.